Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Nudie Brains podcast. My name is Emily and I'm the host. This week, I got to interview Samuel, who is at Secret of the Sea on Instagram, and I had never really spoken to him before I interviewed him, um, and so I didn't really know what to expect. Like, I read over his little um, form that he submitted to me. He studies anemones. I was like, this is great. He seems really cool, um, but it wasn't until I actually started interviewing him that I realized how amazing he actually was. Um, he has, like, hundreds of fish in his house. As along with a bunch of other animals, um, and his wife is also named Sam, so he goes by Samuel because it can get a little bit confusing. Um, and he just posts the amazing, most amazing pictures of like slugs and all sorts of things on Instagram. Super interesting person, super fun to talk to. Um, so I'd highly recommend following him on Instagram. Again, that's at Secret of the Sea. Um, and if you want to follow me, I'm at Emily, the marine biologist. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe to the podcast, and I look forward to coming at you again with another episode very soon. But for now, enjoy this interview with Samuel. So thank you so much for being on my podcast today, Samuel. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks. So what is your favorite invertebrate? My favorite invertebrate is a sea anemone. Uh, it is Phymanthus crucifer. It's commonly known as a rock flower anemone. Um, so, yeah. That's awesome. Why did you start studying science in the first place? I started studying science, uh, I think because since I was a little kid, I was interested in uh, animals and keeping animals. So I'd go to the beach all the time and collect all kinds of animals and uh, keep them in aquariums in my house. And I just learned over time that I was really interested in the behaviors these animals had and uh, how they interacted with each other. So that led me to uh, ecology and college. That's awesome. And I see, speaking of fish tanks, that you have a very impressive one behind you. So that's really cool. I have many fish aquariums. My wife and I have about 30 to 40 of them. Oh my gosh. What do you keep in all of them? We have uh, mostly freshwater fish because she studies freshwater fish. And uh, we have one uh, or a few marine aquariums that I keep sea anemones in. So everything you could think of. <laughs> That's really cool. I know I keep telling my boyfriend that when I graduate, we're going to have like 400 abalone that are going to come live with us at some point. So I'm glad that you've just incorporated it into your home. That's great. Um, so speaking of research and anemones, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about your research? Yeah, so I study um, sea anemones in the genus Anthoplura. Um, and I specifically study three species along the coast, uh, or at least the west coast of North America, um, specifically along the California coast. And I'm interested in how these three different uh, congeneric species, or the three that are in the same genus, uh, how they interact with each other in the rocky intertidal here in California. And so I think there's some niche partitioning going on but among these three different species. And I want to know uh, how that's related to their diet, both their autotrophic and their heterotrophic diet, based on... Uh, the algae, the symbiotic algae that they host inside of them, and the things that they consume from the inner title. That's awesome. Um, and then for people who maybe aren't familiar with the terminology, you use the word niche. Do you want to explain maybe a little bit what that is? Yeah. Um, a niche or a niche, depending on who you're talking yeah. to, <laughs> is uh, kind of what in, uh, 
the environmental conditions that an organism lives in. Um, and that can include both biotic conditions, which means other or how they interact with other organisms, or abiotic conditions, how they're interacting with uh, their environment. And so um, uh, the combination of that two kind of describes a uh, living environment in which those organisms can survive in. Yeah, exactly. And so you're in your fourth year of your PhD, right? So do you yeah. have any like preliminary results? What do you think is going on? Yes, yeah. So uh, we have some preliminary results looking at uh, symbiont density in these sea anemones. So the uh, density of algae that live inside the anemones. Um, and these algae are uh, benefiting the anemones. It's a mutualistic relationship where uh, the anemone provides a nice little environment for those algae to survive and uh, reproduce in. And then uh, the anemone benefits because the algae give the anemone uh, sugars and lipids um, uh, uh, as a dietary source. Yeah. And so what we found is that uh, the mutualistic relationship doesn't always hold up. So one thing that we're working on right now is thinking about how uh, the heterotrophic diet of the sea anemones is affecting that relationship between the sea anemone and its uh, algal symbionts. And so what we found is in the field, if we increase the diet of some species of sea anemones, um, that is the heterotrophic diet, the things that they're catching, um, they will actually decrease the density of symbionts that they have because they don't need them anymore. Yeah. Oh, the relationship can break down in that way, just like it can break down in other ways. That's so interesting. Wow. How cool is that? And is a lot of your research done like out in the field or in the lab? Yeah, it's uh, both. It, it's pretty equally split. Um, I do right now I'm doing a lot of work in the field um, because there's nothing like the field for knowing exactly what's going on. Um, however, there are some manipulations that you just can't do in the field. So we bring them into the lab and do different manipulations that way so we can control more factors. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And people are always asking me, and I'm sure you deal with the same questions, like how long is it going to take you to finish your degree in graduate school? And I feel like in the sciences, it's not a straightforward, like a master's degree takes you two years, you know, so how long do you think you'll be at your PhD program? I think it'll be two more years. That's what I'm planning on, but uh, it may take more. And uh, that's, that's always, that could always be the case. Um, and there's a few different things that people do. People uh, adjunct at different universities in their final year and things like that. So I'm not sure what I want to do yet, but I'm planning on those two more years. Yeah. So you're not sure after your PhD, if you want to like stay in as a, as a uh, professor or things like that, or, or, just, uh, just, I think it, I might stick around and do a year of teaching just to get some more experience teaching. Uh, cause currently I'm on a fellowship that doesn't, uh, I'm not teaching right now. So it'd be good to get a little bit more teaching experiment experience, but it would also be great to get a postdoc, a teaching postdoc or a research postdoc. So I'll just have to see what my opportunities are. Yes. That's awesome. Well, I wish you the best of luck with that. Um, do you have anything else that you want to plug about yourself before we move into discussing climate change a little bit more? Okay, I've got one project that I'm really interested in right now. Um, so that is thinking about how these sea anemones are providing microhabitat for other invertebrates in the intertidal. And so uh, because these sea anemones have algal symbionts inside of them, 
they need to maintain their temperature at a consistent level. So they have the same algal symbionts that some coral have. And so coral uh, need to keep their temperature um, same, or they need to have their environment uh, stay the same temperature. Otherwise, they're going to lose those symbionts. If you hear about coral bleaching, it's the same idea in sea anemones. They need to keep their temperature fairly consistent. And so uh, they live in an environment that's much more extreme, though, with all of these high and low tides, and they're exposed all the time. So um, they actually have a mechanism to uh, avoid heating up too hot, and that is by uh, holding water inside of themselves during when the tide is in or the high or it's high tide. And then when the tide goes out, they slowly release that water and it evaporates so that they can stay cool. Um, and that maintains that symbiotic relationship between the algae and the anemone. Well, it actually turns out that other invertebrates, mobile invertebrates in the intertidal, take advantage of that cooler microhabitat. And they can all congregate around sea anemones to protect themselves against those high temperatures. Um, so that's something that we're doing right now. That's a field experiment that we're doing where we're leaving some anemones in place and surveying what's underneath them, surveying what's on adjacent habitat, and then uh, removing or adding anemones to see if the community changes based on that. That's so cool. It's kind of like sweating, but for the group environment. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Huh. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for talking about that. Um, so moving into climate change a little bit then, what do you think is like the most important thing that everyone needs to know about our climate? Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think most people know this, but, um, and, and address it one way or the other, depending on their views or whatever. But, um, yeah, it's a really big deal. The climate is warming. It's changing. It's not only warming and, uh, and it's caused by us. And so trying to figure out ways that you can either do, do all kinds of things that you can address this. You can, uh, vote. Um, one thing that I've done that I think is, uh, that's been great for us is, um, I've started composting mm. and that's really useful because you're not throwing all that waste in the trash and then it just gets carried away and you're creating a larger carbon footprint. I mean, now that I'm composting, I actually uh, don't put my trash out. Uh, I put it out maybe once every three weeks now instead of once a week. It makes a huge difference, especially if you're eating a lot of veggies and stuff like that. You can compost a lot and anyone can compost. I used to live in an apartment and I would compost on my porch. Um, and it's really simple and an easy way, just a simple thing to get started on more, uh, green way of, uh, living. Do you do that with worms or how do you actually set that up for yourself? Yeah, I actually used to use worms and a compost on my porch. Uh, but now I have a yard, so I'm living in a house now and, uh, we have a compost bin out back and we put everything in there and the worms naturally show up in that. So, um, works really well. Very fancy, moving up in the world. <laughs> That's awesome. And what about for young people who are, you know, getting involved in these climate strikes and maybe they're not quite old enough to vote or, or anything like that? Do you have any advice of things that they can do if they want to make a, a difference on the planet? I think the climate strikes are wonderful. I also think that uh, talking to family members is really important. 
you know, not maybe not just addressing it straightforward, but if they ever bring up something like, oh, this is, you know, this person's views are ridiculous, maybe say, well, if we think about it this way and we think about the future and how climate is changing, this could become really important for me. You know, it might, it might not be in your lifetime, but in my lifetime, it could definitely make a huge difference. So I think that's important. Yeah, absolutely. And um, have you had a lot of experience with climate change deniers in your time? <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah, my family are uh, uh, climate change deniers. So um, I, I, uh, I come from a strange background. My dad is a Southern Baptist pastor. So uh, uh, strange, uh, they, they think I'm crazy for living out here in California. But um, yeah, I, they have definitely warmed up to the idea more as I've uh, talked about it. Uh, and that's why I think it's important to, to kind of bring it up every now and then, right? Because they're the kind of people that you don't want to confront them straightforward. Yes. But bring it up in specific circumstances. I definitely think they send me articles now about different things about climate change. And I appreciate that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. I'm sure that that makes Thanksgiving and stuff a very interesting time around your household. Yes, it does. For sure. Yeah. For other people who are maybe dealing with that in their families and those differences of beliefs, do you have any advice for them for where to start those conversations? I think, like I said, I think it, I think just letting them occur naturally, you know, not forcing it. And uh, it's all a slow process, you know. Yeah. It, it won't happen in a single day. It won't happen in a single conversation. But uh, over time, uh, just bringing up certain things, you know, pointing out, pointing out, uh, facts that they might not be exposed to because of the uh, different news sources or um, uh, communities that they're involved with. They just don't see that. And so bringing up those things to them and showing them uh, the scientific information on uh, climate change can make, a, can make a difference. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for that. Um, and then before we wrap up, I, this, question came into my head and I don't know where to insert it because it doesn't really flow well with anything, but how long does it take you to maintain 40 fish tanks in your house? Uh, it's like, I think feeding is the biggest deal. So, uh, we, we feed all the fish every day and, uh, it, it's really fun. So, it, and we, we share the responsibility, my wife and I, so, um, and we have all kinds of different things that some of our fish are like, absolute characters they 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 just wait for feeding and watch us and follow us around but yeah it, it, it it's a lot of responsibility and it's definitely fun trying to find house sitters when we're away but uh, <laughs> it's we it's really rewarding absolutely and do your cats ever like or your cat i don't know if you have more than one i've only seen one um but does it ever try to hunt the fish or are they friends yeah we have three cats and uh that most of the time they can't get to the fish, but uh, I've recently built this uh, uh, marine aquarium uh, table. So we don't have much room in our house, but uh, I wanted a marine aquarium. So I built an aquarium into our uh, kitchen table and uh, you can view it from above uh, through glass. And so they love that now because they can chase the fish around on top of the glass, but they can't bother anybody because they can't get to them. <laughs> That's so funny. How many animals total? Do you think you have in your house? Hundreds. I can't, I can't even, I have no idea, <laughs> but I limit it to uh, cats and fish. That's it. 
uh, you know, sometimes we think like, oh, we should get a reptile. No, we can't. That limited to only cats and fish. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Um, so do you have prepared an obscure fact or pun about invertebrates that you would like to share? Oh, you're, you're excited. Okay. Yeah, I have a weird one. So I thought of one. Um, so I check the, one of the things I do for my research is I check the stomach contents of sea anemones. So I don't like to, uh, uh, I, I do sometimes, but I usually don't like to sacrifice these sea anemones because fun fact number one, sea anemones are uh, uh, virtually immortal. They don't really uh, senesce like other organisms do or get old, right? So some anemones have lived for over, uh, we, we predicted that they lived for over 500 years, right? So I feel, I don't feel like it's a good thing to go out and remove these sea anemones just to get their stomach contents for one data point, right? So instead, I've come up with this method where I can touch the edge of the sea anemone and the sea anemone tries to eat my hand. So they attempt to eat your hand. And when they do that, I reach into the gastrovascular cavity, which is similar to a stomach. And I pull out any of the things that they had eaten over the last few hours so I can see what they've eaten, right? And one time I was doing this and I found that a uh, rabbit had fallen down in the intertidal. Oh, yeah. And uh, been eaten by several anemones. So several different anemones were eating different parts of this rabbit. And uh, it was absolutely bizarre. They will eat anything that, that they can get a hold of. So they're, they're nature's little trash cans or recyclers <laughs> oh my gosh well i've seen those pictures of anemones eating like a whole seagull like the seagull's upside down in its mouth so that's not super surprising but oh my gosh that's crazy yeah. huh. how did you identify it as a rabbit so it was actually the whole rabbit was still in one piece but the ane different anemones were eating different parts so anemones actually don't have to completely consume an organism to eat it they can just be can, uh, consume one part of it and digest that one part. So one had the head, one had the feet. Uh, it was all over the place. Pretty gruesome. <laughs> That's awful. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Well, if people want to follow you on Instagram and hopefully not see pictures of dead bunnies in anemones, um, where can they find you? Yeah, I'm at uh, Secret of the Sea which uh, is all one, no, uh, no periods or anything. So secret of the sea. And then my uh, Twitter is uh, at Symbiont Sam. Symbiont. That's so cute. I love that. Well, thank you so much again for being on my podcast today, Samuel. It was very nice to talk to you and I look forward to talking to you soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much.